6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Well, we're in a study of the epistles of the Thessalonians. And the five chapters of Thessalonians 1 was behind us, 1 Thessalonians. And then we're now in the second of three of 2 Thessalonians. I sometimes facetiously call it 3 Thessalonians because 2 Thessalonians was the forgery that Paul was responding to. But that confuses people, so I should probably stop that. Okay. 2 Thessalonians. This chapter that we're taking tonight is the heart of this epistle. There's chapter 1 that introduces some things. We took that last time. We, and there's a, a wrap-up at the end. But this is the, the kernel. And some people would regard this as the most important eschatological or prophetic passage in the entire New Testament. So we want to pay attention. Now, the, the, the difficulty is it takes careful precision to not get confused. It deals with an eschatological error from the belief that the day of the Lord was already present. The Thessalonians were really upset, and Paul is responding to their stress. What you have to think through is, why are they upset? It turns out, what you quickly discover, they're upset because they think the day of the Lord had already started. Why should that bother them? That tells you something else about them. If they were post-trib, they'd celebrate that. Okay? If they're pre-trib, they're upset because they thought the day of the Lord had started. And Paul's going to set out to prove that it couldn't be. Follow me? QED. Paul was, you know, pre-trib is the point. The key issue, another key here, is the identity of the restrainer. We're going to talk about the restrainer before we're through. There are some irregularities in the Greek which it seems to imply that it was given in dictation, and perhaps in a hurry. The question is, what was upsetting the church? The possibility that they'd missed the rapture. The day of the Lord came, and they're upset. they're upset because the day of the Lord came. One reason they might be, be upset is because they think they've missed the rapture, which means they must have been taught that the rapture comes before the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord starts, they're upset. Or the other way you could put that same thing is that Paul taught them falsely. Paul taught us that the rapture is going to occur before the day of the Lord, and apparently the day of the Lord has started. Now, the reason they think that is because there's a forgery being circulated to that effect. But see, if they were post-trib, they wouldn't have been upset. That's a very fundamental thing. You've got to come to grips with yourself. It's, it's not free of controversy. People have different views. But the major issues here, what was the sequence of the eschatological events? We're going to deal with that. This is one of the most critical things to set up the sequence. What comes in what order? And who is this restrainer? It's a very strange passage, and there's good, good scholars that have different views. We're going to talk about the preceding events. In the first three verses, it's going to make clear that the apostasy in the church must take place first. It was predicted that there was going to be a, that the church would become very apostate, deny the gospel of Christ. 
Second thing, the temple must be rebuilt. We all, you know, why did the temple have to be rebuilt? This is one of three passages. Jesus makes that remark in Matthew 24, 15. And John makes a similar kind of remark in Revelation 11, first two verses. But there's also 2 Thessalonians 2 that will deal with that issue. And then the restrainer must be removed, whoever he is. And we'll talk about that when we get there. And then we have the church, of course, has to also be completed. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we go. Verse 1. Paul says, Now we beseech you, brethren. They're all believers. He's calling them brethren. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Oh, boy. The coming and the gathering. Two different things in here. So they're brethren. These are common Christian concerns among the brethren. Coming and gathering. The government of these two nouns under one article clearly indicates a single event that's both the coming and the gathering. And that's in the Greek uh, grammar, if you will. This is really simply a summary of the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians that we spent plenty of time on a couple of uh, sessions ago. By the coming, the parousia here, lays emphasis on the presence of the Lord with his people. Epiphania is his manifestation of power and love of God, and apocalypsis is the, uh, is the revelation or unveiling. These three words are often used for the the appearance of Christ. This is the one that's used here is parousia. His presence is the emphasis here. And the, our gathering together, the blessed hope of being caught up to the Lord at His coming is the most intelligible preservative against false and disquieting rumor that the day of the judgment of the earth had come. Okay? The fact the rapture hadn't occurred should have been enough to tell them that the day of the Lord hadn't started yet. But that's just for starters, Okay? Are we together so far? Okay, the, are gathering together unto him. Okay. Now, the, uh, Paul's referring here, of course, to the harpazo, quoted in 1 Thessalonians 4, as you may recall. And the being forever with the Lord thereafter. That's our dream. What Jesus said in John 14, um, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Same thing in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and so forth. Okay that ye be not so soon shaken in mind or be troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as from us, as that the day of the Lord is hand. In other words, he's disturbed that they're so easily confused and upset. You know, that ye be not so soon shaken in mind or be troubled by spirit, by word, or, nor by a letter as from us. And not Paul alone, the three of them, apparently. This, there's a forgery of some kind going around is that the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, this is the first aorist passive infinitive of teleo, which is to agitate, to cause, to totter like a reed, is the word shaken, in other words. To be quickly shaken, that's rashly shaken. It's a passive tense, it implies that it came from an outside force. They're shaken by something else, see? And they're troubled, that is frightened, alarmed, okay? Now, this day of the Lord is a mistranslation in your Bible, probably. The day of Christ is, it appears in many Bibles as incorrect. Day of the Lord is correct because it's kurios in the Greek, day of the Lord. Okay? So that's a, that's a term that's very familiar to your ears if you've studied the book of Joel or studied any of the prophets. The day of the Lord is much talked about all through the Bible. 
It starts with the tribulation, goes all the way through the millennium. Many people don't realize that. Traditional Jewish expression that when God would, God would intervene in history to destroy his enemies and establish his kingdom in the last over a thousand years. The great white throne is at the end of that. Okay? You can read Joel, Zechariah, Isaiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Malachi, Zephaniah. They all deal intensely with the day of the Lord. And in that day, Christ will rule with a rod of iron over the entire earth. But he'll do it from Jerusalem. And he's going to administer with absolute justice. That has become an identity of him that rules with a rod of iron. From Psalm 2 all the way to Revelation 2. Okay, that you be not so shaken in mind or in trouble, either by spirit or by word, nor letter, as, if, as the day of the Lord is at hand. As a letter from us. Okay, this is just prompted by the circulation of a spurious letter, apparently. And apparently an intentional forgery. And they're fretting that they were already in the day of the Lord. And, and why should that bother them? Because they obviously were pre-trip. They were expecting to be out before the day of the Lord started. That doesn't mean they'd be out before persecution. But there's a specific intensity, the wrath of God kind of thing, that uh, that characterizes the day of the Lord. See, Paul had plainly said that Jesus would come as a thief in the night and had shown that the dead would not be left out in the harpazo. Remember that? All from chapter 4 of the first Thessalonian letter. But some of these apparently claim to have a private epistle from Paul that supported the view that Jesus was coming at once, as that the day of the Lord is now present. That was somebody was promoting there. Okay, so he continues, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. A falling away, apostasia is the Greek term, apostasy. There are two issues here. The first is the apostasia, the deliberate abandonment of a formerly professed position or view, a defection, if you will, a reflection of a former allegiance, and this term is used to denote a political military rebellion too, by the way, just in terms of the meaning of the Greek word. In the Septuagint, it's a rebellion against God all through the Septuagint, and it's also all through the New Testament. Now, the definite article points to a great revolt of the end time, and that's in 1 Timothy 4, and we've covered all those in many other places. I won't take the time here. Nowhere does the Scripture ever speak of the rapture as a departure In the rapture, the church is passive, not active. It is initiated by the Lord and done by Him. We saw that in verse 1. That the man of sin be revealed. That's the second issue here. First is the apostasy. The second thing is that the man of sin will be revealed. That's in the aorist tense. It's a definite time when the veil will be removed. His revelation will herald the fact that the day of the Lord has actually arrived when the uh, man of sin, the Antichrist, call him what you will, when he's revealed, you know the day of the Lord started. That's a, that's a key issue. It's, 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 if it hasn't started, it's, you're on the threshold of it. The son of perdition, there's that term. The word perdition is the opposite of salvation. That's all it really means. It's used distinctively of the man of sin and of Judas, interestingly enough. This man of sin, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, very key verse, we, that is just full of insight. 
here. He opposes and exalts himself. And I always enjoy, especially Daniel's, the Old Testament, he always, he always, I like to call him Mr. Big Mouth. He's always exalting himself. But he's, he's going to exalt himself above all that is called God. That includes Allah. That includes anything called God. Or that is worship. This is an anti-theistic revolt, a revolt against God. Replacing all existing forms of worship. All heathen di divinities. It overshadows the Vatican. It overshadows Islam. It overshadows the New Age. It overshadows anything you can fill in the blank. It's all about self-deification in its climax. The word antichrist in the Greek, antichristos, yes, he's against Christ, but that's not what the word means. It means instead of Christ. Instead of Christ. Antichristo, in the place of Christ, is, what it, is, the, is the real flavor of that word. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God. Now, it's interesting how every attempts to do that before the temple, before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Caligula ordered to have his image put in the Holy of Holies. Metronius, the general in charge of the Roman legions then at that time, knew that if he did that, he'd have an erect, so he refused to do that. When Caligula found out, he, was, he sent out an order for Petronius to be killed. But Caligula dies, and by a mix-up at sea, the message of Caligula's death gets to Judea before the message to kill Petronius, which, of course, once he's dead, he's, all bets are off. So... Uh, it's interesting how the abomination of desolation was not allowed to happen from the time Jesus announced that to the present day. Couldn't happen since 780. There's no Holy of Holies to desecrate, but there will be, and that's what's going on here. Naos, the inner Holy of Holies, is the, the Greek term is Naos. In the Greek, Hieron, the temple complex. Naos is within the Hieron. Paul's use of the definite article excludes any other than God's temple. In other words, the temple of God. It's a specific, it's the temple of God. And the Jewish mind, that's got to be standing where the previous one did. Now, where did the previous one stand? They're not quite sure, but when they can figure that out, that's where this is going to stand. Early church fathers understood a literal, eschatological Jewish temple. Irenaeus, in his writings and others, the early church fathers understood this just the way we're teaching it here. Now, it's interesting that satellite TV is implied here. See, this guy is going to be sitting in the temple of God for show. Well, how can people see him if he's there? You follow me? On CNN, of course. You get the idea? Okay. Now, this all is Satan's parody of Christ. His perusia, his coming, is, is, is imitated here. His apocalypse, his revelation is imitated here. His gospel, the lie, is going to be talked about in a few verses later. And he'll brook no rival, of course. And he's going to have with, he'll be with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He'll be empowered by whom? Satan himself. Wow. You know, it's interesting that the Vatican, with all its blasphemies, with all of its non-biblical practices, you've never seen a pope claim for himself an exclusive divine honor. You follow me? His highest aspiration was be, to be the intermediator to God, not to be God. So even the popes, with all their error, has never gone this far as this guy's going to go. Romanus does not oppose all his call of God either. They, uh, or the line, are not specific to a unique 
eschatological person. Okay. Now Paul inserts verse 5 here. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. What's fascinating about these teachings? We're sitting here, we're going to dissect exactly what happens when to try to resolve eschatological controversies among ourselves. What's astonishing is Paul is reminding them of things he taught them in their first three weeks of being a Christian. He went to Thessalonica, started a church, taught them for three weeks, and left town. Then he finds out they got some problems with the rapture, so he writes 1 Thessalonians. Then he finds out, now they're all upset because of this apparent forgery going around. He writes them a second. But he's reminding them of what he taught them during the first three weeks of their Christian work. I think that's provocative. How many Christians are never, to this day aren't even taught these things yet? So this is obviously an essential part of Paul's early indoctrination of his ministry. It continues, And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in this time. Okay, there's something being hidden here for a while. This is neuter present participle, presents this restraint as an impersonal operative force. Grammatically, it's impersonal. It's going to get personal here in, in, in verse 7. The restraint here that he's talking about prevents premature manifestation of the man of sin as the very embodiment of iniquity. The man of sin, that's going to be the subject of our thing here, represents the very embodiment of sin. And the, the, this, there's something holding it back from him being made manifest. We're going to find out what that is here in a minute. Now this is the fullness of time for Christ in Galatians 4.4. It's also for the man of sin. There's a time coming of revealing here. Paul says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Well, the word mystery, by the way, mysterion in the Greek, isn't used the way we use the English word mystery. The word mystery implies it's something that's been hidden up till now. It's now being revealed. It's sort of like revealing a password or something. Mysterion means it's the revealing of something that was hidden. We use the word mystery a little differently. It's now divinely revealed. Paul uses this term in connection with the Revelation and publication in Romans 16, a lot of other places. The mystery of iniquity. The word iniquity actually means lawlessness. You know, there's one thing that's even more frightening than something that's illegal. Well, that's against the law. That's, that's, that's frightening. What's even more frightening is there is no law. Lawlessness is even more frightening, if you think about it. Lawless, with a definite article here, the iniquity. It denotes the definite aim of the devil to overthrow the law of God and to establish his own rule, not merely disorder and violation of law in general, but to establish his own rule. Lawlessness, that's asserting the absence of moral absolutes, right and wrong. Does that sound familiar? Is that what's taught in our, in our schools today? There's no right and wrong. You have your truth, I have mine doth already work. Now the work here is the active operation of some supernatural power. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth. See, you know, for Paul, it's the working of God, of course. And while the individual has not yet been revealed, the spirit that will dominate his career is already operative. He's not revealed, but the spirit behind him is, is visible. Now we get this strange term. It's an old English term that we're stumbling with here. He who now letteth will let. That's an old English term for hinder, restrains, holds back. He that letteth will let. He that hindereth will hinder is the way it's in most modern translations. He who now letteth will let. He, until he be taken away. So there's somebody 
that's holding iniquity back. And the day will come when he is taken out of the way to let it flow. Until, see, there's a very specific time limit upon the present restraint. It may surprise you to know that sin in our world is restrained. Doesn't look like it's restrained very much sometimes, does it? But there's a limit at which it will no longer be restrained. All that can't happen while the church is still in the world, the real church, not, not denominational churches, the, the, the mystical church. Till he be taken out of the way. The be taken, it's in the errorous tense, it's a definite event. It's not a gradual trend thing. No, no. It's a specific event. Now, the subjunctive mode leaves the time undetermined. We don't know when that's going to be. Taken out of the way. Now, by the way, the word there is mesos, the middle, out of the midst. It's not out of the way. It's out of the midst. He's in the middle of what? Where is the restrainer right now? Where is the restrainer right now? Anyone? What? In us. Exactly right. The thing that Paul tries to get across, especially in the, in the Ephesians, is the incredible benefit we have. He knew about the Holy Spirit. He's a well-trained Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament. But there, the Holy Spirit came and went as he pleased. What blew Paul away, and he tried to get across to us how unique and how precious that is, is that the Holy Spirit's given to us without repentance, and it's, it's uh, indwelling in us. That blew, and, he, and Paul is explaining all that. We un, we don't understand his answer because we don't understand the question. Now, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. What does that tell us about the restrainer? It's a person. It's not a force or some principle. No, no. It's a person. Okay? He. See, the neuter participle of verse 6, which is required by the grammar for the word spirit, has been replaced by the masculine participle, the one restraining, he. Now, suggestions in, in the literature, you'll find people say, well, the restrainer is the, the Roman emperors. I don't think so. The Roman Empire itself, or human government generally. Government, the government doesn't restrain sin, it promotes sin. Because the government grows on, on social problems. That gives them an excuse to get more power. And how do you get social problems? By sin. So promoting sin, that it, it may sound strange, but that's the loop. And I, I, we've been through that. Some say it's Paul. Paul didn't restrain sin. Satan certainly doesn't. Some say Elijah, Michael, province of God, so forth. The restrainer. Only God has ever restrained sin. So this is going to be God. Yes, God clearly, but God the Holy Spirit. Genesis 6.3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he also is flesh. It was God's hedge that restrained Satan in Job, chapter 1 and 2. What restrained Job? God did, with the hedge around Job and so forth. It's always the Holy Spirit who restrains. You go through the whole Scripture, you'll never find sin being restrained by anything but, but, but an agency of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 50, uh, 59, 19, as an example, the Spirit of the Lord shall restrain him. And that's very, there's passages equivalent all through the Scripture. So the restrainer is a person, it's a he, it's the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit assumed a special relationship to the church as its indweller. That's what makes the church different. That's why Jesus could say of John the Baptist, no man born of woman is greater than John. Wow, that's pretty wild. But he that's least in the kingdom of heaven is 
greater than John. Does that mean John's not in the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. He's the kingdom of God, but he's not, he's, he's the last of the Old Testament, is what Jesus goes on to say a few verses later. So after the completion of his work in the church, he will resume the relationship to mankind which he had before Pentecost. When the church is raptured, that era for the Holy Spirit is now over, but he's not finished. He's going to continue the same way he did before the church in the Old Testament. I often get questions uh, on these interviews and stuff. Is, uh, you know, uh, are, uh, how are people saved after the rapture? By the Holy Spirit. The fact that he's not indwelling them is the issue. See, we don't appreciate how distinctive we are. The power that resides within each of us. Now, the Greek word for spirit is neuter. That's why it's neuter in verse 6. But the personality of the restrainer in verse 7 is masculine. And, and grammatically so shuts up their way. And of course, all through New Testament, we, we know all you. The Holy Spirit is a person. He loves you. We know the Father loves you, right? We know the Son loves you, right? He went to death for you. Did you know the Holy Spirit loves you? Because you can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. And you're ordered to grieve not the Holy Spirit. You can't grieve somebody who doesn't love you. So there are three prerequisite conditions still today that haven't happened. The apostasy had not yet come. I've got a question mark that I think it's pretty much upon us. The Spirit of God hath not been taken away, and the man of sin is not yet revealed. Therefore, has the day of the Lord started yet? Anyone? No. Good for you. So let's go on. Verse 8. And then shall the wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. He may not do it right then, but that's the destiny of the one. See, then, the, then shall that wicked one be revealed. And then he just tags the ultimate destiny of that one, so you don't mistake who he is. Doesn't mean he happens when he's first revealed to get destroyed, but he will, he will be subsequently, all right? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music